Kiddos can head downstairs. Well, good morning. My name's Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's a joy to be with you. Praise God for AC. Can I get an amen? amen. Air, air conditioning. The glory of the Lord, Lord shown upon the earth. Well, uh, I had great parents by the sweet grace of God, and um, this might surprise you if you know me, but uh, I was actually a very precocious, outgoing child, and there was this uh, very key moment, I want to say early middle school, where my mom was in the kitchen, and I was like standing at the counter talking to her, and she stopped, she turned to me and said, Josh, do you know what tact is? <laughs> I was like, no, you mean like a tact that you pin something up? And she's like, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. I would love to know what I said right before that inspired this conversation. And so my mom, in her uh, gentle grace, explained to me what tact was, that it's not always good to say everything all the time, <laughs> that some questions aren't actually helpful and might be even a little offensive. And I share that story because that was a clear example of my mom observing me, discerning something, and engaging in a loving way, that a, in a way that a parent should. Contrast that to uh, a few years ago, uh, I was working at a feminist coffee shop. It was a very strange providence of God, but we were planning a church in this neighborhood. It was an urban neighborhood in Columbus, and there was a coffee shop that's part of the identity of the coffee shop was that it was a, 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 a female-owned and ran and, you know, kind of enterprise, and it was part of their identity. I don't know how I got a job there, uh, but God saw fit to get me employed there. I was working at a church plant and wanted to supplement my, you know, huge church planner salary and also, uh, you know, connect with the neighborhood, meet, meet people that were living and working in the neighborhood. And I was, this was before I was married, so if you think I'm rough around the edges now, imagine five years without Camille. <laughs> it was even more of an ogre. So it was a very strange deal. And I was having a conversation with, uh, with one of the, the women that worked there, and uh, she was just talking about how, how zealously she believed that Women should be able to do anything they want with their bodies, period, no matter what. No one can say anything about anything ever. And I asked her, I asked her just conversationally, legitimately curious on what she would say, well, how do you feel about uh, strip clubs and women who would be employed in strip clubs? And she said, well, I never want to judge anyone ever but this is really hard because I know research shows that it's really not good for women to be employed in that way. <laughs> so I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what I think about that. I'm not sure what, what I would say to, to someone that I met that was working there. And so it was a situation that I hope you can see the contrast where there was an element of judgment. There was some right and wrong, but a failure to engage, a failure to, in love, move towards someone. Today we're talking about, or Jesus is talking about judging. It starts our, our passage, do not judge. And it's honestly just really confusing, especially if we let the rest of Scripture help flesh this out. I think we see that uh, there's a lot of nuance here for us. And this idea of judgmentalism or judging people, is we're super confused by that in our culture uh, because perhaps... Justly, the church can have a negative reputation for being judgmental people. And then, on the other hand, I hope we can see that in a lot of ways, it would, be, would have been unloving for my mom to judge me as a tactless middle school boy and just push me out into the world as an adult and say, good luck. That in, that in love, we discern, we evaluate, and we engage. 
We're looking through the, this last uh, chapter of the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of Jesus showing us how to live. That Jesus is our King and Savior. He doesn't just save us from our sins, but he calls us into a way of life with him, into his way of life. And today, he's showing us how to judge people, how to, how to interact with people who are different or do things differently than us. And the, the overwhelming theme of this message is discerning rightly. Followers of Jesus, grounded in the gospel of grace, grow in discernment and evaluate life rightly. Have you ever observed some, something with someone right next to you, and then you talk about what just happened, and you're on completely different pages? Jesus is saying that as we're grounded more deeply in what, what is true in the gospel as his people that we become unified and we discern life according to, to God's reality. Not our reality, not one our culture makes up or seems is right. We talked about it in small group this past week on Tuesday night, just looking at the imagery of Psalm 1 where the writer of that psalm, he compares and contrasts a wicked person and a man who delights in God's law. There's a wicked person and a man who delights in God's law. And he describes the man who delights in the rules and God's law, his way of living as a tree planted beside still waters that, that has deep roots and produces fruit. And contrast that with a man who rejects God's law, who lives according to his own way as chaff, chaff blown by the wind. And so Jesus is giving us a picture on how to live, how to how to be the tree and not the chaff. So let's dive in. He gives us three, three rules or guidelines for what it means to have gospel discernment, to have discernment in the way of Jesus. First, he says, Christians, we discern, we do not condemn. Look with me in verses 1 and 2, chapter 7. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's page 1505. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And what, with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the word he uses here is, in, in, the, in the original language, in the Greek, is the, is the word that's used predominantly, overwhelmingly throughout Scripture to describe, describe God's cosmic, eternal, ultimate judgment. The God of the universe will, will, will do this for all of us. He will hold us accountable. He will, God promises, and this is a gift, this is a, a hope, God promises to judge everything with perfect justice, to see that evil is vanquished and righteousness is rewarded with life with him. So as a side note, this is coming. We should all just be aware of this, that one day we will be judged by God. We will be stand before God, and he's the only one who can, uh, who can condemn God is the only one who can condemn people on a soul level, on an eternal level. So I think it's helpful to read the word judge here as condemn. Do not condemn, or you too will be condemned. For in the same way you condemn others, you will be condemned. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Because it's clear, again, only God condemns eternally. We don't have the ability to see people's heart or... Anything like that, only God truly sees the heart of every man. And so Jesus tells his followers, don't do it. Don't be like God. Don't try to do what only God can do and condemn others. 
And he even ratchets it up a little bit. He says, condemn not lest you be condemned. And it's really just a beautiful application of the gospel in the real-life relationships of Jesus' followers. Because what is true, what is a, a key, crucial part of our gospel identity? What is true of us as Christians, as Jesus followers? The key, one of the key parts of our identity is that we are sinners with no hope of rescuing ourselves who deserve to be condemned. That's true of every single Jesus follower. No, no, no one can be a Jesus follower without that being a, a key part of how we understand ourselves. But what is also true, praise God, it doesn't stop there. What's also true of every Jesus follower is that we're saved by the extravagant grace of God. We're sinners saved by grace. And so we relate to others in this paradigm. We relate to others as sinners saved by grace, this undeserved salvation and favor with the God of the universe. God looked on us and, we saw that, and saw that we were guilty, but instead of condemning us, he offers us grace in Jesus Christ. And so when we meet any other person on the world, on the face of the earth, we know that they're a sinner like us in need of grace, or they're a Christian who's a sinner saved by grace. We can't condemn anyone. It's like, it's like if you were poor, like real poor, not like you need to have a budget, but like you didn't know if you were going to have enough food to live. And you actually died from your poverty. But then you were brought back to life, saved, given a billion dollars. How would you look on the poor? How would you look on the poor? With condemnation? Judging them? Well, if you worked a little harder, if you saved better? No. In your poverty, in, in our poverty, our spiritual poverty, we all died and had nothing to offer. The Bible says we are dead in our sins. But God, in grace, brings us alive. If you give a poor person a lot of money and they turn around and start judging poor people, clearly there has been a breakdown in reality. And Jesus is saying that a mark of his followers is that he doesn't, is that Jesus' followers don't condemn because we know that we were dead in our sins. We know that we were helpless, that we deserved condemnation, but in the face of deserving condemnation, we received favor, we received grace, good stuff. Which is why he says that we'll be judged with the judgment that we pronounce, that we dish out. Because if we're going around <coughs> condemning people, then there's probably a breakdown in the extent to which we've experienced grace. We're trusting in our own efforts, so we would judge people. I condemn you because I'm doing it right and you're not. I work hard and you're lazy. I don't drink and you do drink. If that is our paradigm, if that is what we are judging people by, God says, okay, we'll judge you by that paradigm. And all of us are going to fall short. If we have any sort of uh, rules that we follow on our, to make ourselves righteous, then we're all going to fall short. The degree to which we condemn people is the degree to which we will be condemned. And then positively, the degree to which we respond to everyone in love and grace, because of the love and grace that we've respond, is the degree to which we're actually living in what is real, what is true in the gospel. Judging and discerning have to do with being aware of our own stuff, our own saved-by-grace state, our own journey towards being more fully human, more like Christ, which is the next thing that Jesus says when he tells us how to judge people. Look in verses 3 through 5. 
Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The second instruction that Jesus gives his followers in terms of discernment, in terms of learning how to judge people, is to check your own self, to look at your own problems. Where is your own heart? And he just uses an absurd metaphor. You've been in church, you've heard the Sermon on the Mount a lot, but he's talking about a log, a plank sticking out of someone's eye. It's, it's an absurd metaphor. And it's interesting because he uses it in two ways. There's the element of being able to see, and then there's the element of being able to help someone else. We have a plank in our eye. He starts by saying that we are blind, that we can't see. After we've embraced our identity as sinners saved by grace, saved from condemnation, not because we've earned it, not because we're awesome, but because Jesus is awesome, then we have space to actually consider what planks are sticking out of our eyes because we're not condemned by any planks that we might have missed. We have space to discern ourselves properly. This is such an overlooked and powerful part of the Christian life, I think. Is that in, in the safe place of being beloved by grace, not for what we've done, we can then look honestly at ourselves and admit when we've messed up, admit when we've done things wrong for years or decades. Because as Christians, we start with the assumption that we're not awesome. We start with the assumption that we had no hope apart from Christ. So we start with the assumption that the, there's baggage and brokenness and sin in our hearts that we need God to transform, to change, to root out. <coughs> we know we're not perfect, so then we aren't surprised when we make mistakes. We know we're not perfect, so we're not surprised when someone brings up something that we did that was hurtful or wrong. Because in theory, there should be no such thing as a defensive Christian. Because Christians, we, we know that, we, that, that we're broken. Any accusation we would receive, any criticism we would receive, we'd be like, I know, and isn't it amazing that God saw me and loved me in grace? And conversely, we see that in, in a relationship with God as our Father, accusations or criticism aren't con condemnation, but instead they're an invitation to grow, to become more fully human, to leave broken ways of living behind. And again, this self-discernment is only possible if we've received grace. Only if we know that we're loved for who we are and not for what we do can we look at what we do and consider where it's broken and where it's wrong. And look at the plank in our eyes. The metaphor is, uh, again, absurd, but it's also really profound because if you have a problem with your eye, then you're not going to be able to see the problem with your eye. And this is the, the nature of blind spots, is that we're blind to them, is that we can't see them. So if we're in this space of grace where we can begin to look at ourselves, consider honestly, where do I need to grow? Consider honestly, what is the plank sticking out of my eye? What can we do? Well, there, I got two things for you. The first one is to ask God to show us. Ask God to show us the planks in our eyes. If you have your Bible, flip over to Psalm 139. 
We look at the last two verses here. We prayed over these verses in our prayer time this morning. It's page 975 if you're following along in the Pew Bible. This is one of the most powerful prayers that I think Scripture gives us. Anytime you can pray Scripture from your heart, honestly, to God, it's a great place to start. Psalm 139, the last two verses, 23 and 24. Look what David prays. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Self-discernment, I think, it's really freeing to embrace it as a gift. When we're self-aware, that means that God, by the power of his spirit, has searched us and known us. God has drawn near to us and shown us ourselves, shown us the plank in our eyes. So if you feel a little panicky, like, oh my gosh, I gotta go and discern myself. Oh my goodness, I need to, I, I need to get the plank out. Right now, I need surgery. I hope it's freeing to know that it's not something that you can, that you can do, but instead it's something that you should ask God to do for you and give space for him to do it. David prays freely, search me and know me. I'm wide open. I have nothing to hide from, you, hide from you because my relationship with you is not based on me, but on Jesus. And he's asking for it. See if there's any offensive way in me. I want to know if there's something wrong because I want to be led into everlasting life. I want to be led more closely into life with you. We begin with the assumption that we have blind spots and then we ask God to search us and know us. And what I've seen starting to grow in my own heart and of other men that I've walked closely with is that uh, I was in a group of men and we were sharing highs and lows of our week. And one of them shared something that God had convicted him about, something ugly that he saw in his heart at work that week. And that was his high. He felt he was in such a sweet place of grace that his high was, oh, God's showing me broken spots in my heart. God's not leaving me to how I've always been, but he's leading me closer to him. The beautiful testimony to the gospel of grace and what it looks like to live a life of repentance, of receptivity. We get excited about any offensive way that God might show us because it proves that he loves us, that he's with us, that he doesn't want to leave us where we are. He wants to bring us into everlasting life. I just want to talk through a, a tangible scenario of what this could look like because praying this prayer can be kind of ethereal or just say, give space for God to show you stuff, uh, which might not make a lot of sense. The, the, the first one is just imagine uh, the contrast between a life that you wake up, you check your phone, you scan the news, you see whatever you know, so-and-so put on Twitter and rocking the news cycle for that day and then you take too long so you're running late and you blaze to work too fast and you get to work behind and and then you just hustle through the rest of your day just putting out fires to what degree can you see yourself clearly in that space and in, in, in the hustle you can't be self-discerning in a hurry so by contrast if you're saying i would like to know the planks in my eyes I would like to grow in self-discernment. What would it look like to wake up and just be still for five minutes and then read a psalm or some other scripture? Would it be, what would it look like if you had enough space in your life where every day you could journal for 15 minutes? 
You could reflect on what's going on in your heart, and you could journal for at least 15 minutes. Honestly, as a, as a letter to God, this is what I'm feeling. What is this showing me? Can you search me and, and know my heart? What if you went to work not in a hurry, but just able to be present to the drive or the bike ride or whatever? Just whatever the season is, whatever the, the trees are doing, whatever the fields look like, and you could just be present to, to, to reality and in that space, hear from God. And what this looks like practically for me is typically I'll create this space. I'm going to you know, be real spiritual. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to journal. I'm going to be still. And I find myself like thinking about my retirement plan or thinking about the next thing I'm going to do in the chicken coop or the most unspiritual, goofy things that, that, I'm, that I'm thinking about, strategies I start making. And that doesn't mean it, it's broken. That, that is God searching my heart and showing me where I go in that stillness. Because when we just keep our mind distracted, we... We can, we can miss a lot of the junk in our hearts. And so this isn't like, okay, I need to focus just on this. Instead, you're saying, search me and know me, and then pay attention to what comes up. Maybe it's something you did years ago that you feel immense guilt about. And God might be saying, like, hey, how, to what degree is guilt influencing all your life and your relationships? Something you did to someone, something you didn't do, something painful that someone did to you a long time ago might come up like, why, why am I thinking about this? I need to focus on God. That's God searching and, and knowing you, bringing it to mind. And then you take whatever he brings to mind and you write it down. This came to mind. What are you showing me? And you listen. So much of it is creating space. So much of it is just being okay with being still and hearing from God. The second way we grow in self-awareness is to ask your church family. Maybe step one is to get a church family if you haven't embraced one of those. But in church family, we are all sinners saved by grace, seeking to live into that grace more fully. And Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens the other. Just beautiful imagery of iron sharpening iron by chipping pieces of us off with sparks and heat. One of the ways that God designed human life to work is in community where we see each other, the good and the bad and the ugly. And I think in our culture, in our society, especially in small town Michigan, we, we love our privacy. We have the, all these fortresses so no one can really see us. And the only time we go out is when we're on, when, when, when we, we feel on top of it and we feel okay and we have good things to say. And so letting people know us, spending time with people, and asking them questions like, how do I come across? Do you think I have any blind spots? If you could give me one piece of advice, what would it be? Do you see anything in my life that could be improved? And then here's the, the hardest part. And then you just listen. You just listen to what they say and say thank you. And then you think about it and pray about it. Because you don't have to defend yourself at all, right? Who's, who is our defense? Jesus. You can ask clarifying questions. You can ask for example or something. And Obviously, you want to have some wisdom with who you ask or whatever. But remember, God has already judged you and loved you and dressed you in Jesus' righteousness. So you don't need to prove anything. So we can just receive it. 
starting with the assumption that we have blind spots we cannot see, that we have planks in our eyes that keep us from seeing the planks in our eyes. And just receive from God through your church family perspective that you can pray about. And yes, people are imperfect. It's not the Bible. They might not know you as well as you think they should in order to have the right to say that to you. But they're still your church family, and God in his almighty knowledge and love decided who should be in your church family. So we trust God by trusting who's in our church family, even when it's messy. And listen, y'all, for better or worse, I'm, I'm your pastor, and I love you guys dearly, and, and this whole journey towards self-awareness is, is something that's a joy. It's, I feel like I really began it about five years ago because another church member was like, hey, bro, can I talk to you? <laughs> and, and there were just huge elements, of lots of planks. It was like a forest in there, and it, it probably still is. But it's just been such a, a glorious real-life experience of the gospel that I had known for years. I knew all the doctrine for years. And then to kind of come home to myself and turn to my father, all that happened because someone loved me enough to bring stuff up in my life. So all I'm saying is I'm here for you guys. If you want to get lunch, if you want to swing by the office, whatever, we'll find a time and just talk about what it would look like to grow in uh, discerning ourselves and, and self-awareness. Anytime we're starting to see specks in people's eyes, anytime stuff in someone else is really bothering us, we, Jesus tells us to stop and say, do I have a log sticking out of my eye? Is there a plank I need to deal with? And the reason for that is in verse 5. Because Jesus says, First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Just imagine a church full of people with huge logs stuck in their eyes. Again, it's such an absurd picture, we can't even really wrap our minds around it. But just think, everybody would be in pain and have a headache and grouchy all the time, and any time we tried to get close to each other, we'd whack each other in the head with the planks sticking out of our eyes. It'd be impossible to get close to each other without hurting each other. It'd be impossible to see anything clearly. But then imagine a church of God's people who are serious about getting the planks out of their eyes, living in that place of grace where they can say, hey, what are the planks in my eyes? And then by, by the power of the Spirit beginning to see specks in other people's eyes, and like my mom did in the tact lesson that she gave me, move towards each other. This is one of the many verses, and, and this is the beauty of Jesus' teaching. He says, do not judge. And then he says, do this work and get the speck out of your brother's eyes. It's nuanced. Jesus is not forbidding us from ever discerning anything wrong in anyone ever or saying stuff about it. Then we kind of end up like that girl in the coffee shop. Like, oh, you're headed towards a cliff, but cheers. He says, discern yourself, and then you'll see clearly and one of the ways that we love each other is to take our own growth and self-awareness seriously. Because then we're more like Jesus and just more fun to be around. And two, because then we, it's a gift to be able to see people clearly, where you're aware of your own junk, your own inclinations, the, own, the, the way that your own woundedness might hinder the way you see people. And you can kind of put that aside and say, I'm not saying this is true, but this is what I see. Would you pray about it? We can speak the truth in love. 
So we start with the gospel, condemning not. Then we move to discerning ourselves. And then Jesus gives us a little bit of clarity about what it actually looks like to discern stuff in others in the last verse. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under, under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Thanks, Jesus. Well, I'm, I put this in, in the bulletin as discerning fruit of people's lives, not roots. Because again, Jesus clearly says we need to make some kind of call, some kind of discernment on dogs and pigs, and people who are dogs and pigs and how to interact with them. He's not telling us to just fly into every relationship blind and treat everybody the same. He's saying, no, use, use discernment. Judge correctly. Discern rightly. Starting with the gospel, starting with looking at ourselves. So I'm calling this to point out the fruit, not roots, to highlight the fact that we cannot decide ultimately the root. The root would be eternal destination, eternal condemnation or salvation. Only God can judge roots. But then we can look at the tangible, real-life fruit of someone's life and, and, and make conclusions, discern what is going on. Jesus says it even more clearly if you flip over to the next page, chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus instructs his followers to watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears bad fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So clearly, the, the word do not judge is not the same as discerning what we can actually see, what is real, physical, in the real world in someone's life. We can look at what's coming out of a person. Is it love, trusting relationships, peace and joy, a, a quickness to listen, a quickness to admit faults and repent? Or is it the opposite? Is it growing in bitterness? Is it broken relationship after broken relationship? That's always someone else's fault. You ever meet someone like that? They're on like their fifth church or 18th job and they just have had dumb, dumb bosses 18 times in a row. Part of being a follower of Christ is that after we, we develop ongoing rhythms to know ourselves, to, to be uh, searched and known by God, then we also consider what a person's lifestyle is producing. This is part of being in the community of God together. And it can be good or bad. As, a, as, as an example of this, in a positive sense, Hebrews 13.7 is talking to the church, and uh, he says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's kind of a horrifying passage for me as a leader, as a, as a pastor, but that's counsel from God's word. If you are following someone who is a leader who is speaking you to the word of God, you should look at their lives and be like, does it, does it fit? There's, there's this like ongoing cliche that's so, that's 
so tragic that it's kind of funny at this point of like wives that won't go to their husband's churches where, that, where, where they pastor or, or something like that. Where he's like, well, churches get big and you can just kind of be about the show. This is the practice what you preach verse. doesn't matter how gifted you are or in any specific thing. It's consider the fruit of your way of life. So this is what God calls his people to do. So in verse 6, we're called to consider as we relate to people, as we move into relationships, what, uh, trying to, again, trying to discern the, the planks in our own eyes. What is the fruit of the people we're trying to connect with? To paraphrase, he gives us kind of like too many parables. They're like really like two, senten- or two single sentence parables. We got dogs not throwing sacred stuff to them and throwing pearls to pigs. Imagine that we brought our dog Rosie to church and we tried to get her to participate in our worship gathering with us. Tried to get her to sit, period, uh, and, but also at the right times, <laughs> uh, to, to not go around and sniff everyone, to stand when we sing, um, to uh, get a cracker out of the tray and the cup of juice with her, with her paws and you know, sing with the rest of us. It's absurd, obviously, but that would be pointless, and it's not because necessarily that Rosie is a terrible creature. She's a cuddle pup, but she just doesn't necessarily have the capacity for spiritual realities because she's a dog. And I'm sure, you know, it, it says, uh, you know, they'll tear, tear you to pieces, you know, if you, you try to do this to dogs. I'm sure if we, like, really stressed it with Rosie, we could get her to the point where she would, like, turn and attack us. She'd be so frustrated, like, why are you making me do church? I'm a dog. The, the dog parable shows that some people in where they are in their journey just have no capacity for spiritual things. And if we keep trying to beat them over the head with it, he's saying they'll turn and attack us. And the pig parable is even more vivid. If you are a pig farmer, and day after day you're dumping buckets of pearls into the pen, suey or whatever they say, you, know, you just dump the, dump the pearls in there to feed them, what's going to happen? Well, for one, you're going to go broke because pearls are expensive. Two, your pigs are going to starve. They're just going to walk all over them because they don't, they're not food. They're not, they don't smell like food. And they're going to get to the point where you're going to look pretty tasty. They're going to get hungry enough to where like, you, you're, you yourself uh, might look better than a bucket of pearls. And for the sake of our discussion with the dogs and the pigs, Consider the dog parable, what it, what it looks like in relating to non-Christians, people that don't know Jesus. Again, this is not that dogs are bad. It's that they literally don't have a capacity for spiritual things. You know, it's the squirrel idea. And so there, there are some non-Christians who just don't have any interest in talking about Jesus. They're, maybe they're hostile, you know, the, the ranting atheist on YouTube or whatever. I don't have many of those in my real life. Uh, but instead, a lot of times, it's just a, a contentedness with what is. Just no thirst for anything more than just the, the regular rhythms of their lives. Even if they're miserable, there's just really not a space to look beyond their life and their misery. It just doesn't com- compute. Camille and I have done <clears throat> premarital counseling for s- s- several non-Christian couples, and we've just seen a really clear difference between 
people who just are friendly and nice and read the verses that we read together because they're supposed to and they, they have to to do the counseling. And then people who are really engaging because they, they're curious, because they, they want it, because they want to know what God has to say about marriage. It's just clear that people respond differently. And there's wisdom in seeing how people respond and pursuing, pursuing them accordingly. And what I love about this parable, this simple one-verse parable, is that it implies transformation. It's not that like we would actually, with a miracle, get Rosie to participate in the gathering. It's like this is what happens when the lost get saved, is that they go from having no capacity for spiritual things uh, to being a person who, who can, who does, who loves God and, and his word and his people. So we want to see clearly on how to engage this. This is like a practical part of mission. And again, this stems from embracing grace for ourselves, embracing rhythms of self-awareness, and then we engage in mission with wisdom, discerning, discerning what kind of people we're, experience, we're ex- entering into relationship with. And I think it's helpful to understand the pig parable is for those who claim to be Christians. They say they believe, they've prayed a prayer at some time, that they're, and so they think they're going to heaven. But then when it comes to having an appetite for the things of God, a hunger to be sustained by the things of God, it's like pearls before swine. You put the word of God before them, and they are just kind of blind. They just kind of blink at it. What, what do you want me to do with this? I don't understand. You ask them to pray with you. I don't know the answer to this problem. Can we pray together? No, I need to go figure it out. I need to go solve it. It's the dog parable is a question of capacity, I believe. The pig parable is a question of appetite. Do we have a hunger, an appetite for spiritual things? And that is a mark of a Jesus follower, is an appetite for spiritual things. And Matthew 18 gives us clear instructions for how to address someone who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian tree, but then when we see fruit on that tree that isn't in line with what they say, we, we approach them as their church family. And the Bible says real clearly that as the church family, we're, we discern how to interact with people who claim to be Christians. And hopefully, when you do the process of Scripture and people have a hunger for the things of God, there's a, there's a repentance, there's a turning from the way they were and, and a delight to grow to be more like Jesus. But if they don't, the Bible has crazy words, crazy words for how we are to interact with people who claim to be Christians, but the fruit on their tree doesn't line up. This is not me making up. It says, have nothing to do with them. It says, treat them as an outsider because it's pearls before swine. It's trying to give pigs pearls to eat, and they just simply can't. So if we're continuing to dump pearls into the pen, it says we're going to get trampled. And Holy Spirit, protect us from this if this isn't helpful, but you know, we're, we have an empty auditorium over there. We're a small church. We're in a revitalization series. And I think a big part of that is because we've been trampled for decades throwing pearls before people who have no appetite for them. One of the main reasons why we're in this revitalization phase is because 
people who have rejected the word and prayer and, and, and resist obeying scripture have trampled people who have been offering that to them over and over and over again for decades. If this sounds harsh or judgmental, again, we've got to walk through the gospel implications of Jesus' words here. He talks about how we discern in relation to God, which is by grace, through Jesus Christ. We don't condemn others because we know how we relate to God, which is a free gift. We deserve condemnation, instead we get mercy. Because this whole passage falls apart if we don't live in that place of grace. A deep gratitude for the fact that we got mercy in the face of condemnation. And it talks about how we, out of that grace, get curious. We relate to ourselves with a curiosity. Where are the planks? Where are the things that I need God to transform to make me more like Jesus? It's not about him loving me more. It's about how he loves me by showing me the planks in our eyes. The beautiful, mind-blowing part of being a Christian is that when we're saved, we all have a forest in our eyes. We all have plenty of planks in our eyes, and God loves us fully right then and there. And then he talks about how we discern relating to others. Grounded in grace, pursuing self-awareness, we consider the fruit of people's lives. Consider whether they have the capacity, the appetite for the things of Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving us some freedom to not live out the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. We can live out the way of love by calling people who seem to have fruit that isn't in line with, with the way of Jesus. And if there's no appetite for that, then we obey what Scripture says, which is have nothing to do with them, not be in fellowship with them. The whole point of this is not to be mean, not to be bullies, uh, but it's, it's for the, the beauty of the church. Why is Jesus saying this? It's for the, the, the joy and joy of us in living as the church and the glory of God. What a beautiful thing it is for God's people to be rooted in grace, quick to apologize, zero defensiveness, tenderly helping other people see the specks in their lives. Think how different that is than the Ned Flanders kind of cheesy version of, of Christianity where we all kind of put on our church face and our church clothes and we don't know each other or get too close. So consider where you are in this passage. Which, which, one's the, which one of these three tiers you, you are in. And we move back and forth. You feel convicted of an element of condemnation as you look at people, whether it's other Christians or not. Is God calling you to consider anew the grace that is available to you in Christ? When was the last time you really considered what planks might be sticking out of your eyes where you really said, I know there's something there? Do you just need to slow down? Is that the next step for you? Just creating space for reflection? Is it asking someone in your church family that you trust to come alongside you?
Consider where you are in this passage. And some of us might be in the third category where there's someone in our life that we've, we've been putting pearls before for years. Or there, there's a dog that we've been <clears throat> trying to teach to do church for years. And we're depressed and frustrated and hopeless. And what, what does it look like to, in love, obey Jesus and give space for that? So part of being rooted and grounded in, in God's love is being sharpened by his people, drawn deeper into grace, and may that happen here. May we have wisdom as we interact with people who don't have capacity or appetite for the gospel, and may God build his church as we obey, obey how Jesus shows us how to live. Let me pray.